Welcome, glad that you're here, and uh, if you're watching online, glad that you're watching with us as well. If you would, go to your Bible to uh, Romans chapter 14, if you have your Bible with you. If you don't own a Bible, we have free copies of the Bible in the back of the auditorium on that brown table. I'd love for you to pick up a copy of God's Word. Best thing you can own, right, New Hope? Best thing you can own. If you're new to church, welcome. Really glad that you've decided to spend some time with us. I'm going to anchor what we're about to look at with a passage out of 1 John in just a moment. Uh, there's a potential for what we're going to talk about this morning to feel fairly didactic. And by that I mean it, it's information heavy. And um, th- while that's not new at New Hope, that we have a lot of information, um, this one especially could feel like you're sitting in a classroom, and I, I really don't want that to be the case. Uh, because God's word is alive and it, it's, it's sharp and it speaks, he says. And so we're gonna let it speak this morning, specifically, we're going to be talking about what's waiting for you on the other side. We, we think about in terms of streets of gold, and we think of a mansion on the hilltop, and we think of all the people who have died and gone on before us that we're going to see. Have you ever stopped to think about the rewards that are waiting for you? And the Bible speaks very specifically to that issue, that there's rewards for every believer in Jesus. He has rewards that he gives out. And we're going to spend time talking about that because that's what Paul lands on in Romans 14 this morning, that we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And in the case of that situation, there will be rewards based on how we responded to what he asked us to do. So let me give you this anchor verse before we pray, and I'll show you why we're going this direction. 1 John 2, 3. It says, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Check out verse 5. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk in the same manner as he walked. Why don't you pray with me? Father, we're about to measure ourselves, and you do that all the time. You, you record the things that we do according to what you write in the Bible. There's books. There's books of our behavior. And there's a temptation that we're already feeling a sense of regret of having stepped in here this morning because there can be a sense of guilt, but rather these rewards that you want us to see, they're they're rewards for behavior that you want to praise and not punish. So God, I ask that you would help us to understand as believers in Jesus that there are things that are in store for us, and you want us to know what they are. So I pray that you would speak now and speak powerfully through your word and encourage our hearts, encourage us further towards following your commandments. We ask for this in Jesus' name, amen. If you didn't get a chance to be here last week or maybe you didn't get to catch it up online if you were gone, um, in Romans 14, Paul is writing to two groups who are within the church. There's this faction that has occurred and he's writing to the church in Rome. And there's those who are judging people and there are those who are beginning to find themselves despising those who are judging people. And so he starts out verse 10 that where we, where we left off last week, he asked this question. Verse 10 on the screen, but you, why do you judge your brother? That's the first group. Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Now, we discovered last week when he's talking about these individuals who are judging people, those are the ones he called weak. And the reason he called them weak, you might be tempted to think those are people who are new to church or they're new to faith in Christ. That's not the case. 
Those are individuals who are legalist and they're putting rules on other people, trying to get them to conform and behave the way they think they should behave. So those are the individuals who are judging, and then he goes to the second group and he says, or why do you regard your brother with contempt? See, that's what happens when legalism creeps into a church. You get people who become judgmental, and it causes other people to look at them with disdain, and so these two groups begin to divide And Paul's reminding them, we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of God. So last week, we spent some time understanding what it means to judge and why not to judge and what does discernment look like. But verse 10 is remarkably clear that every single believer in Jesus Christ is going to be judged by God. But I was quick to remind you last week that that judgment is not about sin. It's not about the negative thing in your life, the sin activity. It's rather about reward. And so we find this word in verse 10, the judgment seat of Christ is actually the word bema in the Greek language. And what's significant about the bema seat or the bema seat is that's the place where the judge at the Olympic Games handed out the rewards for the contestants. So based on how far somebody could throw a javelin or how fast they could run in a race or how good they were at wrestling, they would receive a reward from the judge who sat on the Bema seat. That's exactly the word that Paul uses here in Romans 14. So this word Bema is a rostrum or a judgment seat, but not a negative judgment seat. So it's from that place, according to the Bible, that believers are going to have their activities evaluated. Well, what kind of activities? Well, we touched on that just a little bit last week, but just to remind you, how we served, how we doing with helping, how we doing with encouraging or providing for needs, or how we doing with our tongue, keeping that baby under control, those kind of things, because Jesus says every careless word will be measured. So from that place, the Bema seat, believers are going to have their activities evaluated. And I want to be very strong and remind you, the judgment we're talking about here is not about sin. Jesus paid for all of your sin, right, church? It's already done. All your sin has been covered. You don't have to fear that you're going to be judged for your sin. It won't be held against you. That's why Romans 8.1 is so important, and we spent time on that last year in the month of May. Romans 8.1, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Great reminder for us. So all of our sins are forgiven. We will never be condemned. Don't look on the judgment seat of Christ that's being referred to here as a judgment for your sin. I just want to remind you once, and I don't think it'll come up again, the fact that our sins will never be brought against us should not move us towards further disobedience, though. We can't continue in sin that grace would abound, Scripture says. Let's go for the big picture, though. What's the big picture that's being described here? Because He is Lord, and He's Lord over everything, every believer will stand because of Jesus and before Jesus. That's really important to get down. You're going to stand before Him because He's your Savior, and you won't fall. You won't have to worry about that. But you're going to stand before him also as judge, so as savior and as judge. So we asked this question last week when we ended. How does a Christian prepare for the judgment seat of Christ? And what I'm about to show you, these first three things that are fairly basic may seem really elementary, but they're actually difficult. They're difficult because it requires, it actually demands a decision on your part. Look with me at the very first one. The very first one is you've got to make him Lord of your life. 
That means you've got to submit to his will, not your will. That's why when the disciples came to Jesus and they said, will you teach us how to pray? His response was, pray this way, our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name, your kingdom come, your what, church, your, your will be done. Not my will, his will. That's, that's part of making him Lord, submitting to his will, not my will. So that feeds into the second one. That means because he's Lord and we want to see him that way, we faithfully obey him because he's Lord. And that leads to the third one. Paul's writing, instead of judging other people, then we've got to judge our own lives because Mark Kring has to make sure that Mark Kring is ready to stand before the Bema seat of Christ. What do these rewards look like? Well, we're going to get into that in just a moment. What we do, we say here at New Hope, is the most accurate indicator of what we believe. What we believe about God determines what we do. So measure your actions this morning. And one of the actions that we get to measure is what's this going to do in this life that's going to carry over into eternity? Because what we're told is what you do here reveals in eternity your reward. Here's where most believers hit a problem. Most believers have a problem thinking about the rewards because we know all about grace and we didn't earn this. So we're hesitant to go to the issue of rewards because it sounds like a contradiction of grace. Let me remind you, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not the result of works. And so when Christians hit that, we think, I'm not, I'm not going to go there on the rewards issue. I don't want to stop and think about that. It's not about works. Well, it's true. Your salvation is not of works. Doing good things does not earn salvation. Right, New Hope? Can't earn it. And if you're new to church, you, you need to hear that really loud and clear. Scripture says this, Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. If you're new to church, I want you to hear that. It's free. You can't earn salvation. You just have to ask God for it. You have to say, I recognize who Jesus is. I want my sins forgiven. I want to become a follower of Jesus. You cannot earn that. Grace, salvation is the free gift. But here's where there's a divergence. The deeds and the actions that we carry out here on earth after we receive the free gift of God those are the evidences brought forth in Christ's courtroom showing whether or not there's actually been transformation. Has there been real genuine life change? In other words, salvation is by faith, but the evidence of our faith is a transformed life. Are you yielding fruit in this life? Because if you are, it's going to yield rewards in the next life. So our deeds are not the basis of our salvation. They're the evidence of our salvation. And that's especially important if you were raised in a legalistic environment. Or perhaps there was a lot of shame and a lot of guilt dumped upon you. That's a very important thing to keep in mind as you work through this this morning. Verse 11 says this, For it is written, and then he begins quoting Isaiah, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. Now, why is he quoting Isaiah? Well, Isaiah is the most quoted prophet in the New Testament, always reaching back and drawing forward what Isaiah said from the Old Testament into the New Testament. Let me put the actual quote for you on the screen. Isaiah 45 says this, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. 
I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. Here's the quote, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. Why quote that in the midst of Romans 14? Because it's a lordship issue. That's what Isaiah 45 is all about. He's Lord over everything, and we're all going to stand before him one day. It's a lordship issue. So he says in verse 12 of Romans 14, so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Do you notice that Paul's including himself in that? He's saying every single one of us from the guy who was on the cross next to Jesus, the thief on the cross, who said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, all the way to the very last person who will confess Jesus at the moment before the second coming. And everyone whom you've ever known as a believer in Jesus is going to be part of this. They're going to stand before him. And Paul says in verse 12, they're going to give an account, just three words, well, to, to an accountant or to a bookkeeper, that's a really important statement, especially in the ancient world because the word that he used here, it's borrowed from the financial world as a person who kept financial records. This judgment seat involves believers giving an accounting, a ledger of their lives to Christ. Let me show you the Greek word that's used there and I'll explain what's going on. It's the word logos. And many people, when they see the word logos, they think of the word word, or they think of John 1. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That's all true, but the word logos actually means a computation of words. In other words, a gathering of all the thoughts and the decision-making process. Did you know that it's very likely that you're going to make 226 decisions today about food in your life? It's true. The University of Cornell did research to decide how do adults make decisions in America and found that the average American adult makes 35,000 decisions a day. By the time you get to the end of this week, you will have made 245,000 decisions no wonder you're tired. You get to the end and go, oh, I'm so wore out. And as your responsibility increases, your decision-making increases. So you just take one day at a time. Let, let's say Cornell got it half right. Let's say you're, you're only going to make 120,000 decisions this week. That's a lot. That's a lot to be responsible for. And it can be, did I turn the blinker on or not turn the blinker on? Do I reach for the refrigerator door or not? Do I grab that bag of chips? Do I say that thing I'm about to say to that person? Or do I keep my mouth shut? The scripture records this in 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. What is the judgment seat? Let's just get a little bit more detailed here. We want to keep it in context. Paul's writing to the church, so he's obviously writing to believers. He's writing to the first century church in Rome, and I think you could go even further than that. He's writing to believers in Jesus Christ who are part of the church age. In other words, not the Old Testament saints. Why? Because they believe by faith, they look forward in faith that God was going to send a deliverer, but they didn't know the commands that Jesus would give. 
And this is related to walking in the commands that he gives. How are we doing with the commands that he gave us? So you could really bear down and go down a few levels and say, this is a really exclusive group. This is about believers in Jesus who came to faith in Jesus as a result of the resurrection of Christ, not the Old Testament saints. And the judgment seat he's talking about here is not an evaluation of your salvation because that would be the great white throne judgment. I want to help you understand the difference between the two. This is confusing to people. Look with me on the screen at Revelation 20.11. It says, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. What's John talking about there? He's writing about the judgment for sin, which you don't have to worry about. We've already resolved that. The great white throne judgment is for those who will be sent out from God's presence Your eternal destiny is already determined by Jesus because you have faith in Jesus. Amen? That's great news. And if you don't believe me on that issue, maybe you'll believe Jesus. I want you to see what he said about this very issue. John 3.16. You know this one? I bet if you grew up in church, you know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not what, church? Shall not That's good news. So you don't have to worry about the white throne. That is of no consequence to you. You have to worry about your neighbor who's going to stand before the white throne, that you would share the faith with them. Our judgment, the believer's judgment Scripture is talking about here, that happens after we die, according to Scripture. After we die or in case Jesus returns first. Look with me on the screen, Hebrews 9, 27. It is appointed for men to die once, And after this comes judgment. But before we enter the eternal state of glory, before you get that mansion over the hilltop, before you walk the streets of gold, you're going to stand before Jesus because of him, and he's judge also. So because he makes you stand and before him as judge, and he's going to determine something. And this is not an isolated teaching just found in the book of Romans. Jesus spoke to this himself. Look with me on the screen. Matthew 16, 27, the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then recompense every person according to his deeds. Recompense is a fancy way of saying pay, to give a paycheck for their deeds. Or this one, Revelation twenty two twelve. Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every person according to what he has done. In other words, the way you're living today as a believer is important because it echoes in eternity. It's not just about getting your ticket punched. It's not just about saying, I'm destined for heaven. Praise God for that. But it's about how you're living today. How you're carrying out the commands that he's called you to. So the Bible speaks of the judgment seat of Christ in three specific places in the New Testament. I'm going to bring one of those out right now. The overarching purpose of the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, is to give an exhaustive evaluation of your entire life. Look with me on the screen, though, at this important detail, 1 Corinthians 4, 5. And I'm going to encourage you, if you have your Bible, maybe you would turn there to 1 Corinthians 4, because there's one word in there that you need to circle, something you need to remember this morning. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says this, Do not go on passing judgment before the time, 
But wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. Do you notice the key word there? The key word there is praise. Your praise comes to you from God. See, this is an examination of your total life commitment, an exhaustive evaluation, a summing up of the total pattern of your life. And so this overall focus should keep you from worrying about all the stupid things you've done throughout the course of your life. Anybody here done something stupid in their life? Every hand in the auditorium should be going up. Every one of you watching online right now, your hands should be going up. Because we've all done dumb things. And that causes us to have fear when we hear there's a judgment seat. And immediately our mind goes to the reality of, whoa, all those stupid things. Is he going to beat me for that? God does not beat the sheep, okay? He's not there to whip us. He's there to praise us. Your praise will come to you from God. It's an examination of your total life commitment. Now, at the same time, while we're not going to be condemned, our present actions do affect what happens at the judgment seat, and here's how. There's two categories in our life that can take us out from earning the rewards that he's talking about here, and the two categories are sin and apathy. Apathy is just another way of saying laziness. Those two things, when they're combined together, they can take us out of the activity that God brings our way. How does that happen? Well, sin will rob us of a desire to serve the Lord because we don't feel qualified. And in turn, what happens is there's a loss of rewards because we won't be using our time for His glory and for His kingdom. So the Bible exhorts us in really unique ways on this issue. Look with me on the screen. Ephesians 5.15, look carefully then how you walk not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. So sin results in a loss of power in your life. And sin and apathy, when they're put together, that laziness factor, they can cause us to pass up on opportunities that we might otherwise perform. God brings an opportunity your way. You've been in sin. You feel disqualified. You back out and say, oh, I'll let somebody else do that. I'm kind of dirty. I don't feel like I'm qualified. And so we duck out. And here's the great consequence of being unfaithful in those moments. It, it disappoints Christ. It disappoints him to the degree that we might even feel a degree of disgrace. Scripture speaks to that. 1 John 2, 28. And now little children abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Do you know why he had to write that? Because some will. He wouldn't write that if that wasn't a reality. Some will feel a sense of disgrace, like, oh, I know what I did, and I shouldn't have passed up on that. That's a really sobering thought that we could be hesitant to stand before Jesus. But if you want to look at it from the positive side, at the same time, it encourages you, saying you can have confidence you can have confidence before him when you stand before him. So some of the things that we can expect to be judged on are going to come up on the screen. And they're in your notes this morning. We're going to take them on one at a time. There's six of them. And these are all related to obedience. How are we doing with obedience? So here's the very first question. I had to work through each of these six of them myself this week, and I'm going to continue to work through them this coming week. 
did we obey him in believer's baptism? That's a really big one. And I'll say it's especially a big one in 2019. Because you don't hear churches talk about baptism a lot anymore. And yet God said, this is a responsibility. It just happens to be coincidental that New Hope is having a baptism service next weekend. And you can jump on this. Because this is not preference. This is a command. So if you're not baptized, how are you going to respond to Jesus when you stand before him one day? Because scripture is really clear. You are going to respond to him. You're going to stand before him. How are you going to respond to that question when he says, why didn't you get baptized? Could it be that someone's going to say, well, you know, every time New Hope scheduled one of those, there was this MSU basketball game and I really didn't want to miss it. How do you think that's going to fly? See, we can come up with a lot of excuses and most of them are just out of embarrassment. I didn't want to put myself on display. I don't care if you're 90 years old. We baptize 90-year-old people here at New Hope. You can do this. God said, I want you to do this. Why? Because what you're doing is not putting yourself on display. You're putting God on display. You're putting him on display of what he did through your life. That's what baptism is all about. And it's not a preference. It's a command. Here's the second one. How well we obeyed the Great Commission. People came up to me after the last two services, last night and this morning at 9 o'clock, and said, those questions are really quite haunting. Well, they are. But these are the things that Jesus called us to do. So Matthew 28 says, go out into all the earth and make disciples. How are we doing with that? With the person in the cubicle next to us at work or the person in the hallway that's got a locker next to ours? How are we doing with that neighbor next door? Are we talking about the things of Jesus? Here's a third one. How victorious were we over sin? These are the things you can fully expect Jesus to ask about at that seat. Why? Why would he ask about sin? I thought he beat sin. Well, he did, but there's a reason that Romans 6 says what it says. Watch with me on the screen. Maybe you remember this from um, about a year and a half ago when we were there. Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Meaning there should be life transformation. There shouldn't be this continuation of habits. There shouldn't be this continuation of gossip. There shouldn't be this continuation of anger. We should be victorious over that because Jesus died to defeat sin. Are we allowing the Holy Spirit to work through us to bring conviction over those issues? That kind of leads us into the third one or fourth one, which is the hardest one for me personally. I'll show you why. It asks this, how well did we do with controlling our tongue? Now, before you get too judgmental looking at me that way, like, I know this is a common human issue with all of us, but this one especially weighs on me because of what James wrote about my job. Look what James wrote in chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. And that causes me to go, ooh. See, James chapter 3, verses 1 through 9 is all about how we use the tongue and how it gets out of control how do we bridle the tongue? Are we really careful about the words we choose to use in the midst of our day? Those are part of the decision-making process that we make. Those 245,000 decisions you'll make this week. 
Or here's the fifth one. How are we doing with serving others? And that can be as simple as changing a tire on somebody's car or maybe making a pie for a friend or visiting somebody in a hospital. How are we doing with serving other people? Here's a sixth and last one. What about providing for kingdom purposes? Immediately, our mind goes to finances. And that's an important one. Perhaps it should go there. But what about this one? What about using your time and your talents? How are you using your giftedness in serving, not just within the church, but outside the church? How are we doing with that? These are the things that I believe that Jesus is going to evaluate on. And as a result of our faithfulness in these things, the Bible speaks of an assortment of crowns that he's going to give out based on faithfulness. Uh, Maybe you're thinking right now, I'm not going to qualify for any of those crowns. I, I read that list of six and think I'm not doing so good with that. Well, hang on. Let me take you through the list of five crowns the Bible speaks of. And the Bible speaks very specifically of it. You can Google later today five crowns and you'll find it popping up all over the internet. But the Bible speaks to this issue most specifically. Let me show you the five crowns. There's the imperishable crown. And this is not in your notes this morning. You might want to write this part down. It's one of the reasons I encourage you to get your notes out. And I'll say them really slowly for you. The imperishable crown in 1 Corinthians 9. Why is that one so significant? Because Paul went to the Olympic Games, he watched the competitors, he watched those who boxed, he watched those who wrestled, he watched those who threw the javelin, he watched the foot race. And as a result of their victory, we give out gold, silver, bronze in our Olympics, they gave out a wreath, a wreath that was worn as a crown, it was made of fig leaves and ivy leaves, and people would put it on their head. If they were victorious, they'd wear it out in public. But eventually, because it was made of live greenery, it would become brittle, it would fall apart, and you're not going to be wearing just a piece of metal there, the the leaves are gone, so people are eventually going to take it off. Why? Because it's a perishable crown. He says there's an imperishable crown coming for you, one that won't fade away. Here's the second one, the crown of rejoicing. It's found in 1 Thessalonians 2. Or the third one, the crown of righteousness. I'm going to tell you right now, there's a crown here in this list of five that belongs to every single one of you this morning. I'll show you which one in just a minute. Four, the crown of glory, 1 Peter 5, 4. Or the fifth one, the crown of life, Revelation 2, 10. Uh, If you're busy writing those down and, and you didn't get them all, catch me after the service. I'll give you the rest of them if you want them. But there's a verse coming up in just a moment that is a really good summary of the crowns. And this one speaks specifically to the one of the ones we just mentioned. It comes from 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8 says this, In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And check this. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. See, that's called the believer's crown. You might think of it as a participation trophy, all right? You get that one because you believed in Jesus. How good is God? He's going to give everybody a crown just because they believed, because you're an exceptional person. You believed in something that you can't see. God's spirit moved in your life and you became a believer that Jesus would give you salvation, wipe away your sin, and bring you to eternity one day. And so as a result of that, you get the believer's crown. It's laid up and it's waiting for you. How good is God that everybody gets at least one? There's a passage in Scripture that says the elders who surround the throne 
are going to take their crowns and lay them at the feet of Jesus. I think in response to that, every believer is going to do the same thing because we recognize who he is, and you'll have a crown to offer if you want. Somebody came to me after the last service and said, but what if I don't want to give up my crown? That's between you and Jesus. I can't answer that for you. James 1.12 speaks of another crown. This one's especially important. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Some of you have gone through hard times or you've gone through them in the past. You know what it is to persevere. And scripture says that God recognizes that. You've taken flack for the name of Jesus. You stand for him in public. Do you get the scorn of people looking at you because you're a Christ follower? There's a believer's crown for those who will persevere. They get the crown of life, scripture says. Here's what I want you to take out the door with you this morning. New Hope, if you have learned of Jesus and you believe in Jesus and you are persuaded that he is the source of salvation, you do not have to go to eternity fearing what's on the other side. You don't have to live in fear of what's waiting for you. God created you for a personal, intimate relationship with him. And so therefore, he gives great purpose to your life. These opportunities he brings your way to serve him, how you decide what you're going to do with the opportunities is entirely up to you. But he says, if you do it well, there's rewards waiting for you on the other side. And so the Bible gives great clarity. Every single believer within the sound of my voice, filling this auditorium or watching online right now, you will give an account. You will stand before the Bema seat and he's gonna reward those whom he loves. So you should not fear it. You should anticipate it with joy. You wanna encourage yourself? I'm gonna try this this week myself. How about if this week you recorded every one of your activities? What would that be like? And I don't mean all 245,000 decisions. I mean, what about your activities? What about if at the end of the day, you wrote down a list of the things that you did, and at the end of the week, you could look back over seven days and say, that's right, I helped that person. I spoke kindly to that person. And I don't mean so you can throw it up in God's face. I don't mean about bragging about it. But I mean rather to encourage yourself saying, yeah, I'm probably doing better at this than I thought. Because most of us, our mind goes to the negative things. What about focusing on the things that God has brought your way that you did act on? So Paul sums it up really nicely. He says this in verse 13. We'll come back to this next week. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. So Paul sums it up with this. Don't judge your brother. Don't judge your sister because we're all going to be judged according to our own works. You've got enough to worry about when you worry about yourself. Apparently, the way that you treat others is being written down and being recorded. It's going to be brought out in the end. So our responsibility is not to criticize and it's not to despise. It's to encourage. Scripture will speak to that next week. I hope to send you out with a degree of joy this morning. There is a crown waiting for you. God's not only going to put a white robe on you, he's going to put a crown on your head. How great is that? Let me pray for you right now. Lord God, I thank you for all the individuals who have gathered here, both those who believe and those who are investigating. I pray, Father, for those specifically who are investigating right now, that you would draw them closer to you, that the work of your Holy Spirit is being 
active in such a way that they can't help but respond to know more about this one who forgives us. And Lord God, I also pray for every single believer here that we would act on what we've seen written this morning, that your word would compel us in such a way that we would chase after those rewards, not for the sake of the reward, but for the sake of the one who gave us the commands to follow them. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that they could walk with a greater degree of courage this week, knowing that you love us so much you even fashioned a crown and it's waiting for us. Send us out the door now with courage. We pray for this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.